I was told I'd never play again. You know, to hear that, you know, so when I'm working with young players, is I'm always trying to tell him, you just, you're never prepared for it. And we trained on a match day, home and away. We'd be on the grass at 9am. I mean, the name Psycho, I mean, you, you kind of, you expect something. And I think that might have been something that surprised a lot of people when he went into coaching the management and he wanted to get away from that name. Welcome to On and Off the Pitch, the official podcast from Nottingham Forest. Now, now here's your host, Rachel Stringer. This is the official podcast of Nottingham Forest, On and Off the Pitch, which is available on all your favourite podcast apps. And it's also available in video form on our Facebook and YouTube page. Today's guest had a career lasting 21 years playing across all four divisions, ending when he was 41 years of age. We'll ask him why he lasted that long in a short time. But now, since hanging up his boots, he's become an advocate for change in the game in terms of equality and stamping out racism in the sport. He was part of the first post-Clough era and spent three seasons here at the city ground, which resulted in promotion, a third place finish in the Premier League and of course the quarterfinals of the Europa Cup in 96 where he was the last English club standing. Please welcome to the official Nottingham Forest podcast on and off the pitch, Jason Lee. Thank you, thank you for having me. Well thank you very much for being here. Um, I was intrigued I think when you were going to sit in my chair just because you're a podcast yourself, the Absolute Lee podcast and I was thinking oh actually I feel like I'm going to be interviewed myself here so not gonna lie you're a bit I'm a bit nervous because I've got someone who does the same job as me on the other side of the other side of the mic today so um no don't overthink <laughs> it I mean I know you had Michael Dawson on also and he's obviously spends a lot of time in the studio I think it's really interesting to see how other people approach these podcasts you know different circumstances different environments and this is a really good backdrop so no impressed so far um lovely 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 little studio lovely little sound um, no, it'd be interesting to see how, how this plays out. He's embarrassing me even more now, now putting me on the spot saying he's uh, intrigued to see how this is going to play out. Hopefully, good. Well, let's talk about the backdrop first then. Obviously, we're here at the city ground where you started in, in 94 and lasted here till 97. I've got to ask you what it was like being a Forest player. Um, it was great. I mean, what I knew, what, um, what I did is I, I knew the history of the club. Um, you know, Forest was perceived to be one of the big clubs. I mean, they're in the Premier League now, rightly so, but um, it's in the finances and the history and what you have to contend with now. It's, it's not an even playing field. So, you know, we're, we're kind of watching that at the moment. But back in the day, coming to Forest, they had been relegated out of the Premier League, but the idea was to get back as soon as possible. So I, I understood the history um, and I was thrilled to get the opportunity to, to play for an established club, you know. Um, so when the call came, I couldn't wait to really get myself stuck in. Yeah, I mean, established history, and I mentioned that in the intro as well, pretty much were the first post-Ryan Clough era as well, coming in with all that history, everything that achieved, trying to continue that legacy or create a legacy of your own. Did you speak about that with your family before you came? Did you speak about that with your friends? Did you know almost... What was at stake and what they wanted you to achieve, getting straight back up into the Premier League, being one of them? Well, I was at Southend playing in the same division and, you know, we'll probably come to that later on. But I knew from the first game of the season that obviously Southend are playing Forest. Forest are the big fish. 
the game was live on TV. Um, you just knew the expectation for Forrest to bounce back was huge. So to get the opportunity to come to the club, I knew there was a, a, a fan base that was expectant as well. Um, and I think if you look back, and I do speak to a lot of, lot of supporters from that era, you take a lot of things for granted. So I think they would love to have a team that's comfortable in the Premier League. You know, we're, we're struggling, we're, we're fighting for our lives at the moment. But to have a team that's comfortable in the Premier League, holding their own and, and beating the big sides, you just, you took it for granted back in the day. But, you know, the players um, that Frank Clark brought in was hungry, keen, um, and they needed to be changed. There was some established players who had been here, you know, with Brian Clough, but there was also a, a nucleus of young, hungry players to come in and take it to the next level. And what was it like, I guess, Frank Clark being in charge? Only been at Orient beforehand, um, had an assistant management post as well, but pretty much new to the management side of things. Was here when they had their, their wander years as well. What was it like for him and was he the right manager for the job at that time, did you feel, with possibly lacking a bit of experience for people like you coming in who did have experience at that time? I think it was proven that it was the right choice. Maybe uh, initially people might have questioned it. He knew the history of the club. He had played for Brian Clough. He knew some of the quirks and some of the ways to manage players, which you could kind of see kind of um, implemented. But he also knew, and you look at his signings, um, he was at Leighton Orient. I was at Charlton. Stan Collymore was at Palace. Um, he knew the young players that was playing in and around, you know, reserve team football. Kevin Campbell was at Arsenal. He took him on loan to Leighton Orient. There's, there's little we knew, obviously, from Swansea. So you could see the younger players that he brought in that he felt might be able to step up. So his recruitment was really good. And as a manager, um, he, wasn't, he wasn't a coach per se. You know, he was a manager. He picked the team. His recruitment was good. He allowed his coaches to, to get on the grass and do the work. And he wasn't visibly on the training ground every day, which I think a lot of the top, top managers now, like the Peps and... And clubs, I think they're extremely intense and they're there all the time. They don't leave you alone. And speaking to players, I know how mentally fatiguing that can be. So, you know, he allowed you to get on with it. And then when he did turn up, training would intensify and you realise that the managers on, on the training ground, we better uh, kind of pick it up a little bit. But that was just the way it was. So it, there was a new era. There was a new fitness regime, which he brought in as well. Uh, the team, I'm not going to say was lazy, but there were some certain traits when I when I arrived that I thought very comfortable you know training wasn't extremely difficult some of the players wasn't used to to doing a lot of running you know there was a lot of moaning when when we were running and I, I was kind of used to that I just thought you know you get that done that's the bare minimum right you, you get the fitness in you get the running and then you can go and play good football so we had to change the mentality of the team and the squad which he did by bringing new players hungry players he was able to adopt that and implement that and then we wasn't bullied and we wasn't out running games and we had the quality and that's how you get success Obviously, that he wasn't really at the training ground a lot. He maybe stayed in his office a bit. When he was down on the touchline during a game, mm. what kind of manager was he then? He wasn't extremely vocal. I mean, Archie Gemmell was here to start with. Um, you know, Liam McCain was always here. He had his assistants. He had people that would step in. Um, he wasn't extremely vocal. I mean, he's captain. I think players, when you set up a team, you hope that your captain is going to do your job on the pitch. So, obviously, we had Stuart Pearce. So... He would be the leader on the field. And we had other strong characters. You know, I wouldn't say um, I was a shrinking violet myself. So I think you bring in the right personnel and you you let the change of them 
handle itself. Good teams are built on players. You know, managers are allowed to obviously recruit and bring in players, but ideally you don't want to be there speaking for and trying to cajole players all the time because what are they going to do when you're not around? Did anything else overlap from, do you think, the Clough era? You said maybe the not the intensity that you'd have expected from a team like that, which you had, uh, possibly the lack of fitness levels. Did he possibly take anything from that Clough era that you noticed from being in the era before that you thought, oh, that's a bit of Brian Clough there, what Frank, Frank has brought, or the way he maybe spoke to you or addressed you sometimes, or did he give you any of these rogue days off like we've all read about? <laughs> I think what he did is he still kept a lot of people. I mean, a lot of people would have still been here from the Brian Clough. So it, it still felt like Brian Clough was kind of lurking around. And you know, Good or a bad thing? I think good and bad. I think it's like when the great managers leave, the Alex Ferguson's and, you know, the Arsene Wenger's, you know, new coaches, new players, new managers have got to come in and, and build their own future. So it was important that he brought in new individuals into the environment. So we had to kind of change some of the... Um, ideology in and around the, around the football club but people you know Forest fans will always reminisce and rightly so you know it's great history you're going to reminisce so you knew when you came in you heard the stories and you knew the expectation um, I think it, even if it wasn't the manager there was other people that would tell the, the little nuggets the little stories the Archie Gemmels was around and I got on great with Archie you know he's quite a con- contentious character you know he wasn't for everybody fiery little man um, but I loved him to bits and obviously his son Scott Gemmell was playing in the team as well and um, you know I really enjoyed playing with Scotty so all these players still had that Brian Clough influence over them but then you've got new players who have come in who, who wasn't part of that who would just be like well that was great now we want to try and move build in a new di- of history. Build, it, uh, build a new uh, you know a little bit of momentum and go in a different way and that wasn't disrespectful it was just fully respective of the history of the club, which I was, but I also knew it was time for change and we had to do something different. Obviously trying to create your own little bit of history. You had three seasons here. What season was your best? The season, um, obviously, unfortunately for Forest fans, was when Stan left. I mean, I came in um, initially in the March uh, 94 when Stan was injured and uh, strikers at the club would have been... Robert Rosario, senior, senior striker, um, Gary Ball, Lee Glover, from what I remember. And then there was a few younger players. So he still needed somebody to come in who was going to be physical and offer that that imposing threat. Um, and he knew what I was about in terms of playing against Southend and he'd seen me, so he knew me anyway. So the idea was to come in and just keep the momentum going. And Stan came back in and we played together a few times, but not very often. Um, but we, that season we did because we closed the season off well together. But the season we got promoted back into the Premier League, we played with one striker, which a lot of teams do now. So we was quite forward thinking in the way we set up, you know, playing with a number 10, you know, five in midfield, whatever it may be, but having one focal point. And Stan would be the focal point. So it was hard for any other strikers to get a game. When we did play together, you can imagine we was we was a problem for a lot of, for a lot of teams and he knew he could always call on that. So... Really enjoyed playing with Stan. But my opportunity came when, when Stan went to Liverpool. So I was concerned like like all players and um, I suppose the club was, you know, what's going to happen next? What's my future? Am I going to get the opportunity? You know, he brought in Kevin Campbell. He brought in Andre Salenzi. You can see, and he's spending money, you know, good money back in the day. 
and I wasn't a, a big name signing and I didn't cost a lot of money so I think a lot of people felt I would be a squad player um, that's not something I wanted to to think about I always wanted to be threatening to get a, a, a game and I knew I had to contend with the new signings coming in and Brian Roy as well you know Brian Roy came in so I got my opportunity um, started the season started really well scored some goals um, and led the line and I was really pleased you know we didn't have to worry about Stan. We was able to be comfortable in the league um, and finish the season, you know, mid-table. Obviously, we dropped our standards from the season before and the season before that. But as I said, the expectation at the club was, you know, we're going to do something every season. And just to be comfortable in the Premier League, as I said, is something that we would take right now today. Yeah, I mean, that was the season which obviously was 95-6, was that one? Yeah. That was 95. You came in 94 95 when you finished third and mm. then 95, 96. Yeah. But you went, played super well in Europe. That mm. must have been a whole new journey and experience for you yourself and one which you must look back with with great pride. Of course. Um, again, people take things for granted. It's, you know, we was the last team left in, in Europe, last English side. And, you know, there wasn't as many TV channels and this, that and the other. But I remember we was on TV regularly. Um, I was injured. I think the Leon game at home. And I didn't play, I didn't start the Bayern Munich games, which was really frustrating because I started most of the games. Um, and obviously we went out, we got beat away and then we got smashed at home. But when you look back on their side, you could see the quality they had. They had some really, really top players. But we held our own. You know, we was a good side. I would have been the lone focal point, the lone striker. Any strikers know playing the game, if you're playing up top on your own, it can be really difficult because obviously you've got two centre-halves um, and you're hoping that people get forward and you're hoping they get opportunities and you've got to retain the ball and look after the ball and in, inevitably you're getting smashed really by, by a lot of defenders and there's the, it's a thankless task. So I would say I loved playing but I found it difficult because I was a lone strike and we didn't create many opportunities during that European run but we did enough to win games and you know I got some assists and I think the fans still enjoyed it. I still hear them talk about it today, so I know they enjoyed the run. Do you think Forrest, because of what they achieved in Europe, still always have that belief, if we were even to get into any of the European Cups now, um, we'd still have a belief that we could put on a run, like you possibly did there. Didn't make that many chances, but still managed to get to the quarterfinals. I think that belief comes from the worldwide fan base. I mm. mean, you... People just wouldn't realise. I mean, it's, when you speak to your younger generation, they don't understand when you explain to them. And I've, and I've coached here and I've worked here in various guises. When you explain to young people like, who live in Nottingham, can you, can you imagine like this team won the European Cup back to back? No, you it genuinely resonate. can't. It doesn't yeah. resonate with people. They can't believe they're like, what? Are you talking about the same club? And those conversations would have been had whilst the side wasn't even in the Premier League, you know, being out of the Premier League for so long. So they didn't understand that the club's history and people can say, you know, that fans live in the past, but what history to live in, you know? I'm an Arsenal fan and we talk about it and I get some stick on a match day. Yes, Forest is, is you know, a, a club that I look out for and I've got a lot of um, history and attachment to, but being from London, Arsenal's my team and Arsenal haven't managed to win the European Cup. So that tells you the magnitude of, you know, what Forest achieved and to do it back to back and, and the way they did it. It, you know, it does surpass what Leicester done, in my in my opinion, when they won the Premier League. Yeah, I mean, it's a, a massive achievement. Hopefully, one day, 
as a younger Forest fan, mm. we'll possibly get to see that happen again. Fingers crossed, hey. Yeah. Um, I always got to talk about Stuart Pearce being your captain. A legend here at the city ground. Um, a legend for all Forest fans. What was he like as a, as a captain? What did he bring to the side and maybe help you bring out in yourself? I mean, I, I knew the myth. I knew the legend before I came in. I played against <laughs> okay, him. Okay, before that question then, what was your preconception of him like before you met him? What did you actually think he would be like compared to possibly what he well, was? Well, I mean, the name Psycho, I mean, what you, you kind of, you expect something. And I think that might have been something that surprised a lot of people when he went into coaching the management and he wanted to get away from that name. But as a player, he lived up to that, especially for the fans on a match day. You know, he, he, I found him hilarious, I'm not going to lie. Um, I mean, he wasn't the biggest, um, but... The legend and the way the fans held him in high esteem, you can tell he fed off them and they fed off him. And some of his, some of his mannerisms and some of the things he did, I, I just thought were strange. And being young... Strange. I've got to stop you. You can't say the word strange what, what and I would say, elaborate. I'm going to elaborate in terms of, all right, so he wouldn't warm up. Like, you wouldn't see him on, on the grass whilst we'd be out there doing the warm-up, which is unheard of. So you, I'm turning up and I wasn't aware of... He's a pre-game regime, and he just or lack would, of. Well, he he would warm up, but he would have like he would just have his um, slips on, you know, white pants basically. The slips what we'd wear, getting ready, no shorts. You know, he might have his socks pulled up if you're lucky. Greased, he's greased his legs. Um, he'd have no top on, and he'd be marching up and down the the tunnel. You know, that would be the extent of his warm up, doing some stretches and this that, and the other. Whilst we'd all be outside and. I just found it really weird, you know. We go out, we come back in, he's good to go. We come out, he, he punches punches the sky, you know, gets the, the fans revved up and he's good to go. I've never seen that before and I've never seen it since where a player's allowed to get away with that. But that's where I said that, you know, with the manager, I'd imagine some managers would maybe say, you need to go out and warm up, but no one told him what he could or shouldn't do and he just did what he wanted and I just thought it was weird. And He was our leader, it wasn't like he was doing anything different. He was obviously used to doing that. Um, but we just had to get I had to get used to that. He was your leader. Yeah, mm. in a different way, possibly. Uh, did he ever kind of lead by example in terms of what he said in the change room? Was there ever any profound statements that came out of he did, Psycho's he, he, he mouth? Didn't, he didn't overspeak. I think, I think little and often is always the best. I mean, I've been a, I've been a captain and... You can talk for the sake of it, can't you? You know, when you have the huddles, I always laugh when players have the huddles because if you really zoom in, sometimes they're just talking nonsense. They just know they've got to have the huddle. You know, it looks good and it's a little bit togetherness. But when he spoke, he spoke with passion and it had an impact. And that's what we needed, you know, from time to... If somebody needs a rocket, um, you know, industrial language, this and the other, we would, we would be told in no uncertain terms that it's not good enough and this is what's expected of us. So... As I said, we had good characters anyway, but sometimes you do need to hear that from somebody. And having a good lieutenant, you know, the manager should know who his captain is. And sometimes the manager relies upon his captain to go and get that message into the players. So you would do that. And more importantly, lead by example. You know, if we started the game, you know, inevitably, well, invariably he would put the first challenge in and it would be a, a ridiculous challenge. And I used to always laugh when the referees used to come running over and say to him, come on, Stuart, no more of those. It's probably too late because the winger would be smashed or in row Z by then. And he's got away with absolute murder on the football pitch. So were the referees like that as well? You the said referees the team were a joke. 
Dale out Stuart Pearce, England captain, to get away with murder. I'm, I'm going to say it as it is. Some of the challenges he put in, you know, I know you have to leave your mark on, a, on a, your opposing player early in the game. But, you know, he would smash them to the point that some of them I would see limping and probably wouldn't fin finish the game. And you'd think, that's a booking all day. You know, no booking, just a word, no sending off. And um, pretty much he would have that player on toast then, wouldn't he? Because that player would be thinking, oh, it's going to be a long afternoon. So that would rev the crowd up. The fans would love him. You'd hear the psycho chant. And as players, we just knew that, OK, here we go. You know, we go into battle. We need to follow the captain, right? Who else was a big leader personality in, in that side? Well, from your time there, 94 to 7. Um, lots of us, as I said, it, it, to have a good side, a good, uh, a good mentality, you need to have more than one leader. So yeah. if he was out, Colin Cooper was assistant. Assistant. He was vice captain. Yeah, not assistant captain. Not assistant <laughs> captain. He was vice captain. And he was a good leader. Um, you know, he'd been captain before. So if he was out, you'd have David Phillips or, you know, there's players who you knew could lead the side. And the spine of the team is important. So Mark Crosley would be experienced, you know, so he's a leader at the back. And then you send Hiles the leaders. Then in midfield, you need to have some leaders. And then up top, you need to have somebody who's strong and who's vocal. And I would like to think when I played, I was a leader. Hence, you know, Later in my career, I was captain, so proved that I was a leader. You need to have um, players who can not shirk responsibility and can step up. So I don't feel a captain should be the one always screaming and shouting. Some captains won't lead by being vocal. They lead by example. You know, so, you know, it's what floats your boat, really. As long as you're getting a message into the players and they respect you, I think that's the key. You've spoken about quite a lot of the leaders on the pitch. In terms of the off-the-pitch culture at Forest during your times here. What was that like? Um. <laughs> a look at the look at which camera. We might be getting a PC answer right now. I'm not quite sure. I'm looking away from Jason. I, I, think, I think like a lot of football, there's a drinking culture. Um, you know, if you had a day off, bonding, you know, players would, players would go for a drink. And I was teetotal when I played. So for me to come in, I would always be in and around it. Yes, I would go out, socialise, but I didn't get sucked into the drinking. Hence, you know, on a Monday, I would, I'd be good to go, wanting to train, and half the squad would be hanging. And it, that would frustrate me, I'm not going to lie, because you think, come on, let's get the work done. And in today's day and age, you can't get away with, um, with that, with all the games and social media and people watching you. But there used to be lock-ins and all sorts, you know, there would be great days, you'd finish training, and if you had a day off, you know, probably some of the players wouldn't, would be missing for a couple of days because at the end of the day, you, you really want to go and get that drink done, right? So a lot of the players would get into that. Um, but for me, I was teetotal. I wasn't the only one. Chris Bart Williams, he was teetotal. Scott Gemmell was. You know, we, we were the boring ones of the squad. We, so what did you do then when these guys were having their lock-ins? We would have a laugh. I would, I would just look at the state of them all. You know, we'd probably be Johnny Cap. Um, we'd be the ones who would drive and know that we could get home safe and kind of keep an eye on some of the boys and make sure they're okay. It was a good crack, I'm not going to lie. The things I saw was brilliant. Um, I'm just glad I wasn't part of it in terms of I wasn't steaming, I wasn't drunk. But that was a culture. You could get away. And fans, they joined in. And, you know, there wasn't... People just expose you now, don't they? Anything you're doing, you get exposed, rightly and wrongly. You know, and it's more, it's more people just hating on the fact that, you know, you can't do that and you shouldn't be doing that. But... You know, fans in those days, 
they would be buying you drinks and they'd be lining them up and they'd just before be, a match day as well. Well, <laughs> I'm just saying that it was a different era and people, you know, wasn't as um, judgmental, should I say? You just can't do that now. Obviously, then at the end of your time here at Forest. Frank Clark left and actually Pierce came in, didn't he, as a player manager. Did you have much experience of, of him getting that role as player manager there? And obviously he brought Nigel Clough back as well. Mm. Um, yeah, what did you kind of, I guess, learn from that short time he had that role of him as a person? And I, I, pretty, much, like? I pretty much went out on loan um, when he took over, but I was there. I mean, I think it was just a learning curve, a steep learning curve for Stuart to go in as player manager at that time. Um, did that almost signal like they didn't really know what was going on almost at that point? Clearly, uh, clearly. I mean, it's not easy to take over uh, when a manager leaves. I think it was really difficult under those circumstances. I think every time a manager leaves, players do feel responsible. And we are responsible. You know, we've let the manager down. We've not performed. And especially when we spoke earlier about it actually being a successful period for the club, that just shows you the expectation of the club was to be where they need to be in terms of challenging every season. So, you know, maybe I'm realistic when we look back at it, but I was really sad for Frank when, when he was asked that he had to step down and leave. And then, you know, the club struggled for a bit. And obviously Dave Bassett came in, Harry Bassett, he came in and he's an experienced manager. So, he, you know, he did what he had to do to get the club back uh, to the Premier League. But I think for, for Stuart, I don't think he would say no. I don't think he could say no. Will you take over? Will you look after the team? He did that. But... It wasn't until probably another 10 years later that he went on his coaching pathway. So it just shows you clearly wasn't ready to actually be a, to be a manager. Yeah, and you just mentioned as well, so after Forest, you went on a couple of loan spells and then finally getting signed for Watford at the end of the season, in the May of 97, that must yeah. have been. Uh, and going over there, um, big club, mm. big presence, a big moment in your career? Yeah, I mean, I was, I was gutted that I had to leave Forest, but... I was never a player who was going to sit around in a squad and not want to be playing on a Saturday. I think that's something that uh, players have to contend with now, being in big squads and just not getting a game. You know, there's no point training. For me, if I wasn't playing, I had to be going out on loan. I had to go and play games. Hence, that's why I played for a lot of teams because you know when your time's up, you know if you're not in, in form or the manager just doesn't fancy you. I wasn't going to be that player who was just going to be a squad player. So... I would always move on. That's why I played for a lot of teams. Journeyman, you know, people can use that uh, that example. But for me, it was about going to play games. And, you know, you never get that time back. You know, I spent some time out of the team and I just, I didn't enjoy it. It wasn't something that I want you to just come in, train, you don't feel part of it. You're not able to um, offer anything to the squad. You're better off just getting yourself out of there. So for me to go out on loan, I went out on loan to Charlton where I started uh, scored some goals, then I went on loan to Grimsby and, you know, got to the end of my contract where Graham Taylor was looking to rebuild down at Watford and when I spoke to him and, and saw the project, I thought, yeah, I'm excited by that. I needed that. I needed to go to a club that was ambitious and I was going to be a, a focal point. So it was a really good move for me. Yeah, and obviously had loads of success there as well in that one season that you were there. Mm. Got promoted straight away. Again, obviously on a completely different team to what was happening at Forest. Back on the up, back trying to get into the, the top flight at that time. Um, what was that season like with A, Graham Taylor at the helm and then B, as chairman as Elton John was there at the same time? You were there in the legendary kind of era as well. 
Yeah, and another club with history. You know, those two people are synonymous with the club. They built the club, you mm. know, Elton John and, and, and Graham Taylor. So Graham knew his football as well. I, I, I didn't fully understand the history that he had. He'd been at similar, uh, similar clubs that I'd worked at in terms of Lincoln. And, you know, he knew, he knew the Midlands. You know, he knew more than I actually thought he knew, which was really frustrating and annoying for me because, you know, he, he was a bit of a know-it-all. But what I learned from Graham was that he, he never left a, to a stone unturned. He was very, very methodical. And you could see why he was, you know, a top, top manager and he went on to manage England. So when he brought me in and he said, look, I'm looking to rebuild, I'm looking to get the team promoted. You know, we had some really good players, some senior pros. We was good value for that for that division. It was us and Bristol City that was contending and fighting for the whole season. And he was very, very, um, very strict with us. You know, very, very thorough. And I learned a lot. I'm not gonna lie. In terms of preparation, I always thought I was very professional, but he took it to a new a new level. So when I was coaching the management, I just realised that I wasn't gonna let players let their their standards slip. I think that's what some players can do. You shouldn't need reminding, but sometimes you do need to remind people that this is what's expected and, and you need to live up to that. So, yeah, it was certainly something that I needed at that time. What did Graham Taylor hold in high regard then at Watford? What was like a non-negotiable in terms of training or playing? Um, good people to start with. They've got a really good uh, reputation of being a family club. I saw that when I got there, you know, lots of people in, was involved. Um, history again, you know, Luther Blissett was back there. He was a legendary striker for the team. Kenny Jacket, who's had a, a phenomenal coaching and management career. He was there. They was these lieutenants. They was in, in and around, you know, the training ground and the club when I was there. So I was starting to learn quickly about the history of Watford now and starting to understand I needed to buy into that ethos as well. And training was extremely hard. I mean, we trained... So get your head round this. Opposite to Forrest. <laughs> well, as I said, it got more professional when I came in because, to be fair to, to Frank, he identified that he needed to bring yeah. in Peter Edwards, strength and conditioning. We did the work we and needed to do. And you had the nutritionist do. back then. You had everything We, we did what we above needed and to beyond. do. Yeah, yeah. Forrest, Forrest elevated. So they moved, they moved beyond the Brian Clough era. But Graham Taylor was doing that. His teams were always very physical, very fit, and you would never outrun any of his sides. And we had lots of data analysis on, on how much distance we'd covered, whether it be training or in games. So there was no hiding place. There would be stuff up on a Monday. And if your stats were low and you started to look at it, you, you had no excuse if he dropped you out of the team because you thought, well, he's showing you there that you're actually not doing enough. So he was, he was ahead of the curve in that respect. But, you know, a Monday's generally an easy day. Sometimes a Monday would be an extremely hard day under Graham Taylor. We'd get in thinking, great performance at the weekend. Monday, we're getting smashed, you know, running. And you just thought, wow, is this the reward? Is this the gratitude? But he's just letting you know that, you know, don't take anything for granted. You don't know what days are going to be off. You don't know what days are going to be easy and hard. And we trained on a match day, home and away. Three o'clock kickoff, we'd be on Vicarage Park or Vicarage Stadium, Vicarage Road, we'd be on the grass at 9am. We'd be doing shadow and he'd be talking and we'd be on the pitch in our training kit and it used to drive me crazy. Like, you're up early, you're getting there, you're on the pitch, you're getting ready and then, you know, you'd shower probably by about 10, half 10 and you'd go to the hotel for 11 then you'd have your pre-match, you'd all be together. He basically said that, he used to say, I own you on a match day. Forget your wives and your girlfriends and your tickets you know, you belong to me. It's all about focusing in on the game. So he had you from nine o'clock 
and you was preparing, but the rigmarole of getting changed and getting ready to go out and, and do, you know, you didn't do much, but it was just the idea of, you know, I oh, could have had another hour in bed and this, that and the other. And then away from home, we did the same. You'd find a park anywhere next to the hotel, a field, and off we went. And I just thought, have a day off, mate, come on. And he never did. And that's, why, and that's why and that's why you couldn't knock it because when you see where you are in the table, there's reasons to why you are, you know, where you are. And you learn from that. As I said, there's things that I've taken, um, non-negotiables were hard work, commitment, and dedication, all the things that you'd, you'd expect from players. Talent talent will be a bonus, really. You knew what players were signing, but he just needed to get players who would buy into the, into the work ethic. And he did that, so... Hence that they got back-to-back promotion, you know, back to the Premier League. You know, great manager, great times. Were you disappointed that you couldn't stay there? I mean, I read that, and you might tell me this is different, that you weren't retained because you wouldn't move down to Watford. Yeah, it was my decision. That sounds crazy. It was my decision, and I speak to players about this all the time, and it goes against against the the, the grain of football. It was my decision to leave, you know. I left there to to sign for Chesterfield, but um, we was due, you know, our last child... My wife was pregnant. And I, when I signed for Watford, I had all intention of, of moving back to London, being from London. But people need to understand that what happens in football is within any time you're told that you're not going to be at a club. You know, a manager can say, look, you're not for me anymore. And it's been said, and it does, you know, on a Monday. And you could have relocated. So I always had to think about my family. Family first for me, and I could commute. That wasn't a problem. Um, but it, it, it's sometimes a problem for, for clubs and managers. And it was a problem for Graham, because every other player had bought into that and it was in the contract that you had to move within um, half an hour radius or whatever it may be. So I understood that and I had full intention of doing that. And I looked at properties and I was commuting from East London uh, where my mum lived and it was like 25 miles around, around the M25, which would take me like an hour and a half. So I'm thinking, I could commute from Nottingham, which I was doing, you know, some days, you know, 125 miles and it would be like, two hours or two and a half hours. So I'd begrudge the fact that you're going to make me relocate and move down south just, you know, so that I'm within the radius. And also you could stay over, I could stay at my mum's, I could stay in a hotel. So for me, it wasn't an issue. Lots of people commute to work, but it was a problem for him. Um, And we were professional and we did the season and we did what we had to do. But when it came to the end of the season, he was like, you know, I need people that are going to be committed. I said, I am committed to the club, but, you know, I have got a, a, a... a new child on the way and I would rather be close to home so you know I'm happy to move on again if you have that conversation with a manager you have to read between the lines and it was a decision I made for my family for me and I moved on to Chesterfield and you know sometimes sometimes I regret because they got promoted again to the Premier League so I watched that and I thought oh I could have been part of that but I've always done what's best for my family and for me so I can't regret that right so when I speak to young players and they ask me things around that, I say, look, do what's best for you and your family because they're the people that are going to be there with you, you know, all the time. And people talk about loyalty in the game. There is no loyalty. Be loyal to yourself. Be loyal to your family. And just do the best you can for your clubs. Yeah, I guess, look, we always talk about loyalty with footballers. And actually, talking to someone like you who has been in the game for 21 years and, and gone so many places, you've done what you needed to do mm. to get on. Like I was listening to your story about not signing for Aldershot and then signing for Notts County. You'd signed on the dotted line, had to yeah. go and get the FA involved because actually Notts County was on your doorstep and that was going to be better for you and your family. You know, that's actually the opposite way, isn't it, of being loyal. Actually, I want to do exactly what I want to do and that's led you to being... Mm 
playing till 41 years of age. We'll get to that in a while. But I, I like that story, actually, of you not just kind of rolling over and sticking no, I, to I mean, what you've done. I'm impressed that you found that, that little nugget. I mean, that's true. I mean, that caused a real bone of contention. But I was probably too... too I signed too quickly for that club. I was at Northampton. Was that you just being desperate to no, play somewhere else? I mean, I was never without a club, so people could judge players all they want. And there's lots of players who leave the game at various ages, so it's not easy to stay in the game. But I always had offers. So whatever people think of me as a player, and then people will always say, you were this, you were that. I always had offers to play football, so I knew my value, and people in the game knew my value. I wanted to sign for Notts County a number of times over the years, but they just wouldn't sign me. You know, their owners and this, that and the other. And Howard Wilkinson. Close your ears with the way Forest fans. Listen, he wanted to sign for them for I, years. I, Close wanted, your ears. I wanted to sign for them because it was on my doorstep. I know. And I was commuting, travelling to all these other clubs everywhere. So this is how football is. You know, I moved to Nottingham and I played for Forest and then I ended up commuting to clubs all over the country. But you did do quite a lot of the Midlands. The Corby, the Ilkestons, Chesterfield, yeah, you know. Yeah, you try. You, you try. You did try. I saw you try, <laughs> but I mean, I went to Falkirk. Scotland. I played, I played okay. in Scotland. So... <laughs> I, I would go wherever I had to go. And being from London originally, some players will only play down south and some players will only play up north. I thought I'd just play in the London region and play for London clubs. You never got Leighton, did you? But it didn't work out. <laughs> it didn't work out that way. You know, I've gone from Charlton to Lincoln, from Lincoln to Southend, Southend to Forest, Forest to Watford. So again, you can see I'm up and down the country. Where am I going to live? I was buying, I was renting. You know, it, it became very hard to juggle that. So at some stage, I made the decision that we're going to live in the Midlands, I'm going to commute to all my clubs, and I'm going to do what's best for my family. So signing for Notts County on my doorstep, finally, was perfect. But what happened is I signed for Aldershot. They came in really quick. They were really desperate. They were really keen. They did everything. So I had no, no gripes with them. Really, I was really sad that I had to, had to uh, disappoint them. But then a friend of mine who I played for, at uh, Lincoln and a former teammate Steve Thompson got the job at Notts County and he always said if he got another job he would sign me and I was like yeah I'd always play for you he got on the blow away he said look come on come and sign for Notts County like, oh god I have to go make the worst phone call of my they life had, now they had one player they had Mike Edwards who's like the stalwart of the club he'd always been there other than David Pipe and I think they have pretty much building a whole new squad of players but he said look you'll be a key component for me come and sign um, I, I said I want two years he said oh, the, the owners and the chairman said they're only going to give you one year ageism that's what happens in football well, you're 35 yeah I was 35 and like I, I'm telling people I do a lot of stuff with EDI like whether it's football or whatever ageism is a big thing so from 30 onwards you're, there's no resale value you know people look at you and they won't sign you or they won't bring you in and, and there's always a threat that you might want to be a coach or a manager so to get that offer at 35, I got a two-year offer at Aldershot. Um, I needed a two-year offer at Notts County, right? Simple, because I've already got that. I've signed that. The deal was done. So they had to they had to relent and give me the two-year deal. And I didn't let them down. I had you know, my first season, top goal scorer, led the line. I was captain, club captain. I was always professional. I wouldn't commit to something if I wasn't... I, would, I wouldn't want to shame myself or let myself down, so... I repaid them, I believe. They got value for money out of me, but it caused a bone of contention with the FA. You know, you signed a, a document, a legal document, but we had to just say, look, there was no money exchange. No, I've not received yeah. any payment. Come on, you know, let's just get it done. And yeah, I think it's one of the rare times that we've able to overturn it. Bone of contention with the FA. Bone of contention with the Forest fans playing over the road at Notts County. Nah, that was fine. <laughs> and I played, I played uh, pre-season... Um, 
at Meadow Lane, Forrest came over. We played a preseason game. I got a really good reception. I played for Boston preseason against Forrest. Got a really good reception. Listen, fans understand that, yeah. I think they under. I'm 35, man. Come on, I played for all these teams since. I lived in this in this city for so long. I don't think many people could begrudge me. I know some would because they're diehard fans, but not many people would begrudge me the fact that come on, you've got a chance to live locally and play locally. Another team which I guess was relatively local, Peterborough. I'd love to hear what it was like there under the character that is Barry Fry. I used to work on Nickelodeon on a football league show called Nick Kicks. It was a children's show. And we used to go to Peterborough and chat to Barry. And I was just like, you're a hoot. And so I only met him in passing a couple of times and at this awards evening. And he was always such great fun. So I can't imagine what it was like to be kind of in and around him for quite a few years, actually. He had a loan spell there, didn't you? Then you got signed. I played for him twice. So I knew him really well. I think he's Marmite for a lot of people. He's like a car salesman. And if he was working with you and children, he must have been on his best behaviour because he can swear. But I knew him. I went to um, I went to Southend from Lincoln, so I knew what he was about. And he was struggling at the time. We bought the club for a pound because of financial problems they had. He inherited all the debts, remortgaged his house. He ran me on New Year's Day, and and I wasn't even fully fit. I was recovering from a cartilage operation. I said, "Look, I'm still doing rehab." He said, "I don't care. Just having you in the building will help. Will you come in New Year's Day?" So I've gone there and I'm trying to work my, my fitness and I'm thrown straight into the team. So he wasn't getting the best performance for me right in the beginning. But what endeared me to the fans is I scored the winner against Northampton, which is a local derby. And if you score in a derby, you know, you're one of ours, you know, one of ours then. So, but we went from third bottom to the playoffs, won the playoff final, got promoted in that season. So pretty much to what Steve Cooper did here, he took a team that was struggling but he's always had that Marmite relationship with the fans. I think it's the way he talks maybe sometimes and people. He's like a car salesman. He's good at he's good at recruitment. He's good at buying players. He's not a coach. He's not, you know, he's not a coach in that respect. He's a motivator. And if you see any of his stuff online, you know, that is what he's about. Screaming and shouting and just anarchy and, and chaos in the changing rooms. And obviously fans are going to love what he tried to do for the club though. You said buying it. He for saved the club. Buying it for a pound, taking on the debts, that yep. must mean he's got a love for that football team and wants to yep. do well for it. I think he's life president or whatever it is, he's there and rightly so. As I said, he, he saved the club, he did what he had to do and he, he achieved some success on the field as well. So there's always going to be people that dislike you for whatever reason. It, you, can't, you can't have likes from everybody, right? You know, it is what it is. But I know that for me to play for him twice... Um, he must have been a good guy because I had opportunities to play for other people twice and I, I chose not to. So, you know, it's in my hands who I want to play for. I played for him when I was a young player and then I played for him as a senior pro. I knew what it was about. And if you go in and you do what you, you know, you want to do and you, you have good players around you, he will allow you to do that. You know, he's very good at bringing young players in and selling them on. So that's always exciting to see some of the exciting players that he brings in. So... You know, I enjoyed Peterborough. The, the unfortunate thing was I was injured for half of my time there, half of my contract, you know, career-threatening injury. I played till I was 41, but at 30, ruptured my patella tendon. I was told I'd never play again. You know, to hear that, you know, so when I'm working with young players, is I'm always trying to tell them, you just, you're never prepared for it. No player, when he leaves the game, regardless of what age, is prepared to be told he's not going to be playing football anymore. Well, I had a serious injury, and I, I hadn't put things in place, which was crazy. 
So ruptured my patella tendon, started to re-educate myself, spent a year doing the rehab, got myself back. And obviously every year for me was a bonus from then. You know, I was, I was very conscientious and very professional and had an eye on, you know, my transition and what I was going to do next. So I didn't take my football career for granted, which I was doing to, to that point, which is crazy to be a 30-year-old man with responsibilities and not be thinking about, you know, what, what plan B is, what's next. So you had an eye on what was next. You did a bit of kind of academy coaching here. You're at Notts County a bit. What was that looking like in your 30s of what you thought you were going to do next? I think, and not everybody wants to do it, I think like a lot of players, uh, transitioning to coaching and management seems like the, the natural fit, right? Surely so for you as well. It felt, all four yeah, divisions. It felt, it felt natural enough for me. I started to do my coaching badges from the age of 30. I was a player coach at Peterborough. You know, I was injured and then obviously I got back in, back into playing, so you focus on playing. Um, so from the age of 30, I started to start thinking about coaching, but I also did a sports media degree, broadcast journalism at Stoke uh, Staffordshire University. I started to re-educate myself, went to college, went to uni. It was difficult, I'm not going to lie. You know, I left, I had not done any education from the age of uh, 16, which is what happens to a lot of players. They come in, you know, they're taken away from education and they don't continue which, you know, I work with players and try to get them to think about education. There's funding available from the PFA. They need to have an eye on the prize in terms of outside of football. You can focus on two. You know, the dual pathway can work. Some coaches and managers will be quite selfish in that respect to say, you know, you belong to me, go home, eat football, sleep football, drink football. I don't think that's conducive to, to a healthy mindset. So for me, it was a real bonus to be thinking about other things, doing other things, just educating myself and just being prepared, you know, for the eventuality that I'm going to stop playing one day. I wasn't to know that I was going to play on forever and play for a long time and carry my body to where it got to. But that's why I was comfortable playing because I enjoyed it and I did it. I was motivated knowing that I'm not doing it out of desperation, knowing I've got nothing else lined up. I can go and do other things, but I'm just going to enjoy my football because once, you know, you're a long time retired. You know, once you can't play anymore, the majority of players will miss it. Obviously, you've got your role now at the PFA. Has that come about mainly because of what you experienced here at Forest, which is very well documented? Obviously, the racism that you experienced at the hands of two very well, com- very well known comedians in terms of Frank Skinner and David Bedell. Um, did you feel you needed to go into a role with the PFA? Um, I'll say this before, like before, during, and after. I was always dealing with discrimination. So whether it was the, you know, the pineapple, uh, the, the skin and Badil, even before then I was dealing with racism, you know, playing in the nineties, playing football from the terraces and hearing it. And people were very, um, they was able to get away with it in, in front of your face. There was no hiding, you know, people are more cute now, you know, we talk about unconscious bias and this and the other. But in those days, it was just there. I grew up in the 70s, you know, I grew up on a, on a council estate. There was a lot of racial tension. There's a lot of things going on. Bullwater Farm, Tottenham, this, that and the other. You know, National Front. It's, it's always been there. I think we're in a different space now where people are doing more training, which is great, which I enjoy doing and delivering. But whether the, the, the skin of a deal impacted me to think, thinking about going into that may well be the case. I just knew that I had a story to tell. Uh, I can certainly identify with people that are 
are under duress, who are dealing with discriminatory issues and, you know, talk about allyship and about supporting people across all areas. You know, I'm a, a real advocate um, for the women's game and, and other areas. And anybody I can support, I will help. You know, it's about doing the work. So when the opportunity came at the PFA, it would be, I think, 2012. And I'd just finished management uh, at Boston United. So 2012, I saw a role, uh, equalities officer within the PFA. Very small uh, department of one at the time. She, uh, director of EDI, Simone Pound. She was on her own doing the job, doing the work. A female in this industry, a, a woman of colour. She needed support. Uh, so myself, Darren Moore went in, who's obviously a manager. He was working with me, Terry Angus, a guy called Riz Roman. Uh, me and Terry are still there. Darren Moore's obviously gone back into coaching and management. So, you know, we went in and we really wanted to move it forward, move the dial and go in, go and speak to players regularly, go and speak to stakeholders, um, do media, try and raise the profile of tackling discrimination, especially ra racism, because that's, you know, something that we can identify with. So really enjoy it. It's not, it's not easy. Some days it can be really taxing mentally, um, but more often than not, I'm up for the fight. So, I can have bad days, but more often than not, I, I kind of reinvigorate myself and I get up and I, I do my work. And I think if you're prepared and you're honest, it's about having those honest conversations with people, which I really enjoy, um, getting their feedback, letting them share, because that's part of the problem is people are scared to talk about it, you know, most of the time. So therefore, you don't know where you stand on a lot of these areas. So I do a lot of work around context and, and words and understanding. Um, I want to alleviate the excuses. You kind of just said there, you're up for the fight. If you knew everything you know now back then, would you have said more when you were being so terribly racially abused here at the city ground in your tenure as a Premier League star? I'll tell you what. Because you didn't say it, much. It was, it was we'll a complete... talk about this. Because the way the world was, no one asked, no one cared. No one asked. No one asked. So there wasn't... like like I'm doing now. There wasn't as much media. You know, you come out after a game, you do a piece. So if I scored a goal, you know, I scored at Leeds and I held my hair up and that was me saying to everybody and anybody, there you go, have some of that. That was my way of letting people know and expressing myself. I've always believed that I'm resilient, but I know there are others that I've spoken to who are less resilient. And I don't understand why people should have to put up with what they're expected to put up with from people. So when we talk about resilience, it's a great word, but did I have to put up with that? I had no choice. Sink or swim. I was, there was no way I was not going to continue my career. I was only a young, a young man playing football. My way of dealing with it was to just go and perform and keep ploughing through and go and play and show people, especially if you're putting a good performance, you can have the last word. So I never had the opportunity. Nobody came out and said, do you want to do a piece? Do you want to do a media piece? And you want to talk about it? I was invited on the show. I was never going to go on the show. I wasn't going to gratify what they was doing. I wasn't going to sit there and be the clown and say, yeah, what you're doing is great. I'm, you know, I'm not overly sensitive. I just don't like what you're doing. I'm not happy with it. You know, what do you expect me to do? Laugh along with people who just don't understand the connotations and the full, the full depth of what's happening. People did you, didn't understand. Did you feel like you had to laugh along though? And laugh I, at yourself I being didn't, ridiculed? I, I didn't laugh along and I didn't laugh at myself, but I've got a sense of humour. So I understand, you know, some things are funny if you're making a mistake and this, that, and the other course, you can take that. But the nuances around it, you know, family and friends, you know, wearing dreadlocks, when people ask me to this day, you know, are you, are you pineapple head or did you use a pineapple? No, I have to stop them in their tracks and say, oh, actually, I had dreadlocks, which I tied up. 
I tied my hair up. That was it. When I wasn't playing football, I wore them freely. You know, for the black community, it's a big deal. You know, hair is a big deal for a lot of people, having to explain to people that you, you can't really be mocking someone because of their appearance, because people want you to conform. You know, when you go to school and this, that and the other, especially for a lot of black people, they're told to cut their hair. They're, you're not allowed to wear braids. You're not allowed to wear dreadlocks. You know, you're not allowed to have an afro. It's like you're being told all the time how to, how to dress yourself and how to appear. So that hit a lot of people hard. You know, but people don't understand that. I didn't understand this. But when we talk about it, I always feel that the person, you know, if they've got half a brain, they will understand and empathise and think, you know what, I didn't see it that way. And, you know, maybe I was wrong because lots of people I've spoken to over the years have apologised for the fact that they would have sang it and they would have been part of that. They've apologised. So for me, that's like, well, that's great because now you're getting an understanding, which is, you know, if it's my job to explain to you, I would do that. Um, you know, I do a lot of restorative work with people. You have to explain to people where they're going wrong. You know, if they're prepared to listen, great. If they're not, then, uh, you know, move on. I can't do anything with that. But I never had the opportunity. We wasn't in a time where people wanted to hear about it. And they built up such a cult following, Skin of a Deal, during that period that they had, the wave was with them. There was no way I was going to be able to quieten that. I just needed to carry on and, and plough through it. So I had my days, you know, I scored the winner, not scored the winner, I scored the equaliser at Stamford Bridge <laughs> for Forest against, against Chelsea. That's my way of saying, look, I'm still here. You know, you've not ruined me, you've not killed me, I'm still here. To be a professional at the highest level takes a lot. And I know what it takes. And far better players than myself have not been able to attain that and have not been able to stay in the game. So... You know, I'm, I'm immensely proud when I look back on my career. During the time, you just fully focused on doing what you have to do. Um, but for me, it was never it was never a hardship. It was never a hardship being a professional footballer. I loved it. Just going to carry on a little bit, Jason, what we're talking about there. Obviously, you're in the PFA now with your, with your not new role. It's been in it since 2012. Mm. Um, how much work still needs to be done? We've had... Black Lives Matter and taking the knee. We've had no room for racism. We've had the blackout. We've had lots of different campaigns to try and stop racism in, in football. Is there something that you would do if no one had a, a say of what you were wanting to put in place? Is there something that you'd want to instill into the game? With the hashtag enough, I felt that I, I, off the back of Raheem and I was talking about it, I needed to get players together. It was Troy Deeney, it was Raheem, Danny Rose at Spurs, mm. there was Lyle Taylor. There was a number of players. Okay, let's come together. Let's try and um, lead something. Let's lead a movement. Let's get not only the game, but let's get the general public to back and get behind just shutting down your social media platform for a period of time. And I wasn't on social media then. I am now. I've popped up. People that have seen me have seen I've popped up out of nowhere the last year because I'm doing it to raise my profile and doing stuff around EDI and other bits and pieces. But for me, I understood what was going on, but it was my choice not to be part of social media. You know, if someone's got something to say, come and say it to my face. But I know, you know, I've got young people, young children in and around my life. That's their life. That's your life, social media. But what you're having to endure is just, is just not on. So I was having to engage with social media platforms off the back of Raheem and players saying, you know, we're getting destroyed online all the time. And we couldn't get Facebook, we couldn't get Twitter, we couldn't get them to engage in a conversation. Well, why would we? But when we threatened, which we did, the boycott, the social media platform, 
guess what? We had lots of meetings with these companies. You know, I was having to travel to London. I was sitting there, I was engaging, I was having conversations and we're still having the same conversations. You know, creating a platform where people can be safe and people will have to give up identification. For me, that's a non-negotiable. But people don't want to do that. Well, why don't you want to do that? Why are you hiding behind, you know, these anonymous accounts? I want people to be identified. You know, I want people to be accountable. That's something that could and should be done. So especially in the UK, we can hide behind some of the rules around other parts of the world and, and people don't have freedom of speech. But I think if, if we're serious about challenging social media, that would be one thing that we could implement. So, and you need to highlight the fact where people are getting prosecuted. Supporters are getting prosecuted. People are getting found guilty. You know, I've dealt with a lot of discrimination cases where people are getting found guilty. And a lot of it's probability. So you have to have facts, you have to prove it. But we shouldn't be hiding, as I said, with the grey areas where social media companies, listen, let's be honest, they feed off the fact that negativity sells. It used to be the papers, now it's social media. Things trend when there's a really, you know, disgusting topic out there. You know, whether it be Black Lives Matter and this, that and the other. People feed on it. There's a feeding frenzy and people buy into it. And the fact that you allow people to just be vitriol and say whatever they want feeds into it and it sells and it's a great it's a great product. But if we're serious about dealing with it, we would prevent that. It's always cowardly though. It's security in numbers, isn't it, on the terraces? Of course. When there's people around you and it's a keyboard warrior at home. You yeah. know, rarely you'd have it, we hope not anyway, that someone would come it come and say it directly to your face. Mm. So hopefully, Jason, you're still part of this creating some change and you know, it's got a long way to go. But yeah. hopefully that the role models that we have now in football are the new generation of players who have a voice, have a platform and, you know, paramount in creating a couple of these campaigns that you've done at the, the PFA, which is great to hear about. Uh, I'm looking at the clock. I'm going to get out my phone because I have picture time okay. slash story time. Okay. This one is Barry Fry. Yes, Baza. Obviously, we've already mentioned him. Um, you've called him Marmite. Have you yeah. got a story about Barry? Yeah, I try and keep them short because you could write a chapter on Barry Fry, <laughs> but I signed, I signed um, from Lincoln to Southend and he should have done his due diligence. I always scored against Barnett, who was his previous club, um, so he knew what I was about. But I'd got sent off at the, at the end of the season for, for Lincoln, so he signed me for Southend. And the first game of the season, which is televised, is against Nottingham Forest. Okay, spoke about that earlier. I'm missing the game. Okay, but he doesn't realise. So in the pre-season game, I score a hat-trick against Cape Town Spurs or whatever it may be, a South African side. And he's building me up in the media saying, yeah, but, you know, got the replacement for Stan Collymore. He's gone to Forest. It's going to be great. It's going to be great. Can't wait. And I'm, we're getting closer to the game. And I'm thinking, you do realise I'm not going to be fit to play. Right? Or I can't play yeah, because of suspension. Yeah. Um, but we get to the Thursday and the game's on the Saturday. And he's still talking like I'm playing. So I'm like, Baz... I'm not available this Saturday, you know that. And he starts kicking off. He said, in all my years as a manager, no one's ever done that to me. And I'm like, well, just do your own work. I'm not going to tell you, am I? I, I want to sign. I was desperate to go from the fourth division to the, to the first division, the second division then, you know, the championship. I was desperate to move back to London. Do your own work. It's, you know, I'm go I've got one more game to miss. So I missed that game. And then obviously I came back in, in the next game and... I rewarded him because I got man of the match and scored the winner at Millwall, but he was he was peed. But he, what he also did in the game was he, 
and I can't imagine this happens very often, but he basically said at halftime, you're rubbish, you're coming off, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, yeah, whatever. You know, I'm giving him some bad, I've got stripped off. I'm in the shower. As far as I'm concerned, my day's over, it's halftime. I, I started the second half. You were in the shower? <laughs> I was in the shower. As far as I could say, the game was over, I'm not playing again. He said, he sent his assistant in and said, look, go and get him, you know, he's starting second half. So I had to quickly dry off and... Crazy, imagine that, right? So I start the second half and this is typical of the man. Did you have a fresh kit or did you have to put the one on you take it uh, off? There, no, there wasn't two kits. No, so I, I, mean. I put on some old style kit, but, you know, the point is, and he, he always, he never held any grudges. I think some people are really petty like that. You know, we used to have kicking and screaming matches all the time. It's done with, you know. Let's go out and perform and go and play. So as I said, for me, that was a young Barry Fire. I played for him as a senior Barry Fire. I knew what to expect. I knew what it was about, but... You know, I've always held him very fondly. I like Barry Fry. Next one. Who's that? Jimmy Bullard. Jimmy okay. Bullard. It brings a smile to my face, Jimmy. We still speak. I'm in a, in a posh uh, WhatsApp group. We know what Jimmy's about in terms of his humour. Is uh, he there when Barry, he was with, you Barry, with Barry Fry? Yeah. So he came in from West Ham, him and a couple other players, young player, as myself, Leon McKenzie, we're, you know, Andy Clark, we're there. I'm a senior pro. Uh, so always wanted to see, always enjoyed seeing young players coming in. Jimmy Bullard, full of energy. Like still hyper, is, right? <laughs> hyper, hyper active. Like, can't keep still, can't stop talking. So he comes in and um, and I'm enjoying his banter and his set and the other and he would wind people up all the time, all day, every day. But it got to the point where, you know, and I can, I can sympathise, hair's a big deal. I've said that already. You know, in my life, hair's a big deal. He used to get a lot of stick about his hair, what he looked like. I used to call him granddad. Because I thought he looked like a granddad, even as a young person. But he came in, he had this big mop, you know, curly, curly hair. And he was irritating the boys. And it got to the point where I could hear him talking and say, look, we're going to shave his head. You know, someone's going to bring the clippers in. We're going to shave his head. And I was like, I want no part of this. I want no part of this because, you know, people had threatened to cut my locks back in the day. And I knew that would have been death, like end of. So, okay, they pin him down. You know, some of the boys, they pin him down. They, they get the clippers out. And if you're trying to, like, shave in a sheep, you can imagine, it's, you need to take a little bit off, right, before you start shaving in. They've put the clippers in. The clippers just got caught right in the front there, and it's just taken out a big lump. And they realise that they can't go any further, and it's like, oh, dear. So the clippers are stuck there. He's running around the change room going mental, like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kill you. I'm going to kill... And he's really, literally, he's, like, upset. He's crying. He wants to, he wants to just destroy the whole place. And um, he didn't let it go. So, you know, on a, on, a, on a match day, basically his revenge was he went round the, he went round the change room and cut all the trousers off off the suits, just cut the legs off, deal with that. <laughs> so, I mean, he left mine to be fair because there you go, you I was in I was happy with that. Clipping. But he went round and he just scissored all the all the all the suits, man. And I just thought, yeah, fair play to him. And the boys was they was devastated. But you get what you asked for, payback. If I Google Jimmy Bullard mm. missing tuft of hair... You won't find it. Won't find it. Okay. Won't find I, I won't it. waste my time then. You won't find it. <laughs> right. Final person. And I don't know if you have a story about this guy. You're chairman at Watford, Elton. Yeah. John. Yeah, I do. I do have a few stories. I mean, Elton, great guy. Um, as I said, he, uh, you know, lifelong Watford fan. He's done a lot for the club. When I signed for Graham Taylor, Graham Taylor being Graham Taylor, he really did drag out the the negotiations. I mean, I went down there, pretty much knew what I wanted and what should be agreed. And generally that's the, 
the thought process, you're just going to go there and you're going to get it done. But I've gone there and he's showing me around the stadium. He's showing me everything. And I, I did a medical. And believe it or not, in those days, medicals at some clubs wasn't very thorough. You know, I've been to clubs, even with Barry Fryer, there, there was no medical. You do for me, go and play. Which means no insurance and this, that and the other. So uh, crazy. Anyway, so Watford, he, he, he was thorough. So I shouldn't have been surprised. This should have alerted me to the fact. So I did the, the medical, which was crazy, you know. VO2 max, he's sprinting on the treadmill. <laughs> you know, I think he's bloody hell. He's trying to ruin me right now, but he wants to see how fit I am. Did the medical, got showered, got changed. Still talking, still in his office. Come on, right, let's just get to the money. Let's get the deal done because that's what it's all about. And he's dragging it out. And I'm thinking, what's going on? You know, my agent's already spoke to him. I'm on the phone to my agent. I don't think I'm going to sign. Like, he's irritating me now, like really getting on my nerves. I, I just feel like I'm just going to go home. So the phone rings and Graham goes, oh, there's a phone call for you. And it wasn't mobiles in those days. Right? There's, a phone, there's a phone call for you. <laughs> and I'm, I picked up the phone. It's Elton John. And I, I'm thinking, wow, this is big. I've never spoken to Elton. And he's like, listen, between me and you, you know, he, he's just being, he's just being Graham. He's going to sign you. We've got it all sorted. Just hang in there. He knew already that what yeah. I was. He knew already. He said, "Look, I, I can't wait. I'm excited for you to join the club, and and can't wait to meet you. Just get it done." And I was like, "Okay." That that rested me. I felt really good about it, and I thought, I put the phone down, and I just thought, Let, "Let's just get it done." And he said, "Yep, not a problem." He knew obviously between them they colluded. That's probably the, the way they worked with players all the time. But also, you know, Elton would be at games. He'd come in regularly, and. Elwyn, you know, during that time, you've got to remember Princess Diana passed. And, you know, yeah, he was the 97? one... He was the one that sang. You know, we won the league. He was the one that, you know, played yeah, at, played wind, at yeah. a funeral. And that was big, you know, the respect and um, the admiration that everybody, you know, the outpouring, not only for Lady Diana, but for Elton. And, and we got to see him and be part of that and say to him, like, that, that was incredible, man. I mean, but really, you know, really humble guy when you consider... He's like, um, he's like royalty, isn't he, Elton? But he loved his football. So when he came in, he was just one of the boys. Well, very varied bunch of People. guests there. But, yeah. you know, all got a story mm. and all kind of make you kind of go back to yesteryear and, and think of a memory. So thank you very much for sharing them. We have one more thing. Okay. Sorry to keep you. I'm keeping you a long time is here. Is this a surprise? No, this is question time. Okay. A more, more question time. This is the leaderboard of Nottingham Forest. Competitive nature kicks in. Leaderboard here okay. at Forest. So you can see, who is on top? Is this all Yatesy? Can't yeah, see five. Me. Five. Okay, so we've got six questions. Mm. Five, I'm going to ask you. One is a listening question. So they're all like about you or your career or related to you. So, so you should, should, be good at, should be good at this. Right, question one, Jason. You reached the quarterfinals of the Europa Cup in 96. Who went on to win that year? Must have been Munich, right? You're telling me they lost? I'm going to say Munich. Correct. Yeah, it's it not a be. trick question. Yeah, it had to be. But yeah. <laughs> okay, that was a real easy one to get you going. Number two, your namesake, Jason Lee, is an American actor. Which TV series is he best known for? Is it My Name's Earl or something Oh, like you're that? so annoying. That's of course I know. Too. I'm going to know that because if you Google, you get <laughs> me know. or him, right? <laughs> well, I didn't know. I was like, how much does this guy Google himself? <laughs> Clearly a lot. Right. Three. 
Which player from your Forest days finished their career in New Zealand? New Zealand. And you've spoken about this chap a lot, actually. And if I, do you mean to tell the team? Because it's fine, it's the New Zealand team. Yeah, tell me the team. New Zealand Knights. <laughs> Doesn't really give much away there, does it? Oh, God, I can't, uh, how can I not know this? You, uh, shall I give a clue? Yeah, give me a clue, come on. That's a tough one. A father and son duo. Oh, Alfie. No, Scott. Oh, Scott Gemmell. <laughs> yeah. So I don't get that. No, you don't get that. You got 50-50 there, two uh, out of three. Scott New Zealand Knights, there really? you go. Yeah. Um, four. Frank Clark gave you your debut at Forest, but when he was a manager, which other teams did he manage? Uh, so, so don't say Forest, obviously. Other teams. I mean, Leighton Orient, your general manager, if you want to include that. Um, Man City. I don't remember him managing after Man City. I think he was assistant at Newcastle. Or, or no, Sunderland. That's it for me. That's that is it mean. for him. So <laughs> three out of three. I didn't think you were going to get Sunderland. Mm. There you go. Uh, so three out of four. Question five. In your first season with Forest, you finished third in the Premier League, or your first full season, who finished one and two that year? Oh, man. I'm going to go United. Um, United and Arsenal. Mm-mm. Blackburn Rovers, oh, and then Man United. Are you giving you a point for both? So Blackburn won that year. Yeah, and United were, were, uh, were second. Mm. Okay, so that is three out of five. Mm. Bonus question. This one, you have to listen to this track and guess this player. My dad was a footballer and also played for Forest back in the day. I'm not happy with that. (laughs) Do you know what he said, firstly? My dad was a footballer and also played for Forest back in the day. So he was a player, this guy who's talking. He he is a, he's a current player. Oh. Oh, I gave you a clue there, some, you know. Oh man, I'm not happy. I'll be here all day, I don't know. Dad was a footballer and also played for Forest back in the day. Played for Forest back in the day? Yeah. You'll, you'll kick yourself. You literally will. I'm getting ready to write a big old three or four. Oh, I'm devastated. I'm a current, current player, player as well. I just can't even think. My mind's gone blank. Shall I tell you? This is the pressure of being under. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. Brennan Johnson. Oh man! I told you. That's told terrible you. for me. Yourself. You got three out of six. That's terrible. That's bottom. Are you? Oh my god! I'm last. Last actually, place. You actually are. Oh, man. disappointed. How do you not know who beat you to yeah. the Premier League title that year as well? Blackburn yeah, Rovers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, Jason, there you scored three. Um, thank you very much for taking part yeah. in the Nottingham Forest leaderboard. But boom. You've ended on a negative there. I did, but there was lots of positive. Thank you for chatting to me. You're welcome. I appreciate your Loved time. It. And uh, really good luck with all your work at PFA. And thank hopefully you. I'll see you at the city ground. Um, before the season's out. If you like that, remember to subscribe and um, hit the subscribe button wherever you listen to your podcasts as well. And we'll be back for another episode very soon.